Well, it sounds like someone would rather stay and hear the sermon. Good. All right. Well, it's good, again, to be gathered together here in the air-conditioned chapel to be able to dig deeper into God's Word. Last week, if you were with us or if you uh, watched on the live stream or on the website during the week, you know that we talked about this often-spoken biblical command, do not be afraid. And we mentioned how that can be maybe sometimes the worst advice you could tell somebody, but we dug into when God says it, he puts his own weight behind it to provide for us a, a solution to our fear. And we were reminded that peace and freedom from fear is found between the pillars of God's goodness and God's control. When we trust that he is good, when we trust that he is sovereign, we can truly have peace in our lives. But in our passage today that Steve just read for us, Jesus teaches a version of this command. It is a little more specific. Instead of do not be afraid, Jesus says repeatedly, do not be anxious. Or in some of your translations, it will say, do not worry. And and in this short passage, we had Jesus repeat this command three different times. So whenever you're at home and you're reading scripture, when you see a repetition like this, when something happens over and over again, that should be an attention grabber for all of us. We should take note because this is going to be an important part of the message. And indeed, that is the big idea of our passage. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Up to this point in our sermon series on fear, we've talked about fear in very general or generic terms. I've kind of used fear or anxiety or worry as interchangeable things. And, and that's been, I think, good and necessary. But, but today we're going to drill down to be a bit more specific because that's exactly what Jesus is doing in his teaching. He doesn't say, do not be afraid. He says, do not be anxious or do not worry. And fear and anxiety are related, but they are very different. So we could define fear as a response to a perceived threatening situation happening in that moment, at that time. And and yes, the ground that we've covered so far has talked about some of the negative things that happen when we live our life always under this idea of fear or a fear response. And yet, fear, as we just defined it, does have some positive instances. It can sometimes be good. It is actually a response given to us by our designer and creator so that when we are in a legitimate threatening situation, that fear can kick in this fight or flight. It can give us this adrenaline rush and we can run out of a burning building or we can protect our loved ones or we can run away from danger. Whatever the case may be, that that response of fear can sometimes be appropriate. And it's not those appropriate times that we're, we're talking about here, but there is that element of, of positivity to fear. And yet anxiety is different. It's a response of worry and unease to a situation that may occur or may not occur. We don't always know. It's much more hypothetical. And so as we will see in Jesus' teaching, there is no positive benefit to being anxious and to worrying about what might or might not happen. Now, one of the things that I love as someone who uh, tries to continue to learn how to communicate well is to go to a passage like this and see just how good of a preacher and teacher Jesus is. And so, yes, he commands three times, do not be anxious. And he could have left it at that. He could have just told everybody the bald truth, don't worry, and, and then left it alone. But he wants to dig deeper. He wants to encourage others. This is a, a part of the Sermon on the Mount one of the the best and and most complete 
sermons or teaching moments that we have recorded in the Bible of Jesus' teaching ministry. And on this Sermon on the Mount, he, he covers a lot of different passages and has so many different segues. And so when we pick up in verse 25, we'll encounter a therefore. And this is another little tip for when you are doing your own devotional reading at home. You have to ask yourself, what is the therefore Therefore, it's easy to remember that way. And it's always a connecting word. And so we need to go back just to what Jesus has finished speaking on, which is the notion of wealth and where we lay up our treasure. He has encouraged his hearers to lay up their treasures in heaven. And so, of course, when he talks about not worrying, it also is related to wealth, related to having what we need. So that is a connecting idea. But when we read our selected passage after the therefore, especially in Matthew's account, if you're interested, you can take note that there is a parallel passage of this in Luke chapter 12. But in Matthew's account especially, Jesus uses rhetorical questions to hammer home his point. Do not be anxious about your life or about tomorrow. So again, instead of just telling people, don't be anxious, no, go and do that, he uses this tool, teaching tool of a rhetorical question to engage his listeners, his hearers, to allow them to answer those questions, to draw many of their own conclusions about why anxiety might not be helpful at all. And so together we are going to take a look at some of these very questions and do the same thing as hearers and listeners of his word today. As we do that, I would just invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we again count the many blessings we have in our lives as we uh, gather together here today as, as believers and those who are, are seeking and those who are, are here because our parents told us to, whatever the case may be. We're here and we, we just invite you to be present among us. And we invite your spirit to guide us into your truth, that we would truly hear your words and that uh, your spirit would not allow, not just allow these words to take root, but, but really Uh, change the way that we live because fear and anxiety and worry is something that is an ever-present temptation to fall into. So God, I pray that that through these questions and this teaching of your son that we would just be even more equipped to overcome anxiety. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so what are some of the questions that we have that, uh, that Steve, again, read for us in this passage. Well, we encounter one right off the, the hop in verse 25. Jesus will ask his listeners, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And I think this question uh, gives us a few different things that we need to establish at the outset. First off, we need to be aware that Jesus is talking about, in this teaching, in these examples, he's talking about the necessities for living. Eating, drinking, clothing, they're all important and intangible examples of what people needed to live, especially in the time that Jesus is originally preaching this. Uh, Things like food and clothing are not as guaranteed as they may seem in our context. It was something that people worried about and they needed. And so when we read the examples, we need to, to realize Jesus isn't using specific examples, like this is only pertains to eating and drinking and clothing. He's using these to, to be broader representation of the, of the basic necessities that people needed to live. They're, they're specific examples, but to tie into the broad example of what people needed to live. And so many people during that time would have been concerned about having these bare necessities, and uh, the simple bare necessities of life. And, 
And I couldn't, I couldn't help it. I, I think, is the video going to work, Dean? All right, don't take my word for it. Listen to Baloo. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. <laughs> God, I'm, 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 the, I'm not the only one that thinks of that song when I hear the word bare necessities, right? Good. Well, I think that the necessities blue might be referring to are different than that what Jesus is referring to. But all of this is a way to remind us and ground us at the outset that Jesus is talking about what people need, which means he's not talking about people's desires. He's not talking about those things that, that are wants and not needs. And it is true. And, and we can point to many different passages to establish that God is a giver of many good gifts. He, he loves to bless his children. That's his heart towards us. And while that's true of God, it's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That would be a different sermon altogether. So we are talking about what people need, not necessarily what people want. And what Jesus sees around him, I'm sure in his disciples, but also in many others that he is, 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 is looking out and they're listening to him in the sermon, he sees many people so focused on making ends meet, so focused on having just what they need, that they're missing out on the big picture. Which is why this rhetorical question hits home. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So yes, we're talking about those necessities. And yes, they are important because we need them to live. But Jesus sees people so determined to just get those things that they need that they're missing out on something more, something greater. Because, of course, life is more than food and drink. The body is more than clothing. Church, I would say this. We are meant to thrive, not just survive. We are meant to thrive, not just survive. This is one of the, my favorite pieces of advice that I like to give to couples who are soon to be wed. By the way, does everyone know that Lucas and Emily are engaged? You guys didn't call it off yet, right? You're still engaged? Yeah. Good job. Good job. It's exciting. And so, you know, I'm going to give you this little bit of advice, and the rest of them can just listen in for, for a second. This is what I love to, to share with soon-to-be-wed couples, and often if I get to officiate, you'll hear something like this pop up during the, the, the sermon that no one actually listens to on the wedding day. And I will say that, you know, it is good. We, we as, a, as a church, have rightfully looked at some of the, the dangers and the collateral damage of divorce, and we've been very focused on just don't divorce, do whatever it takes to stay together. But somehow, I think we, we, we somehow unwittingly define a successful marriage as one that just doesn't break up. I'm like, that's, that's a great component of a successful marriage, but we should not define any relationship just by not splitting apart. Just survival doesn't mean that your marriage is everything that God wants it to be. He wants you to thrive, not just survive. And while that is true in our marriage relationships, it is also true in our relationship with God. Just as a marriage relationship is designed to thrive, when we say we have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, this is also meant to thrive. So regardless of your marital status or soon-to-be marital status, we can all resonate with what Jesus says when he says life is more than just what you need. It's more than survival. But what does thriving look like? It is relationally driven. 
The fulfillment that Jesus alludes to here in his question isn't about the mere enjoyment of life. Just feeling good and feeling happy and doing what I want and having my own truth, that is not how we thrive. That is, that is a lie. That is fool's gold. We thrive when we enter into a personal, right relationship with God, the creator of the universe who desires to call us son and daughter, who desires to, to abide in us as we abide in him. And when we walk through life in that right relationship, then it is so much more than just what we need. We can truly thrive. This relationship with God will sustain you through anything that might make you worried or afraid. And it's all available only through faith in Christ, who would preach these words and then years later put those words to action and pave the way through his sacrifice on the cross for us to enter into this relationship with our God so that we too may do more than survive. We can also thrive. This is the lesson we learned from Jesus' first rhetorical question. And yet there is a second one that he adds in, uh, in some of the main parts of his teaching. In the verse 26, we will read to, to, to his listeners, he says, Are you not of more value than the birds? So with so many people around him preoccupied with obtaining the necessities of life, Jesus then goes on to use some common examples of how God will care for them. And he, he again, shows his his amazing teaching abilities because regardless of people's background or experience or level of education, they can all understand these examples. He says, first of all, look to the birds of the air. They aren't farmers. They don't sow crops in the ground. They don't reap at harvest time. They don't have the ability to put this uh, plentiful food away and store it in, in barns or storehouses for a rainy day. None of that. And even though they can't do those things, your heavenly father still feeds them. He still looks out for them. He still provides for them those necessities that they need. Then Jesus goes on to use a second example. He says, look at the lilies of the field or the grass on the field. They do not toil or spin. They don't work. And that word spin is a reference to to a loom, to, to making clothing, because now he has talked about don't worry about what you are to eat now, not what you're about to wear. So he says the, the, the flowers of the fields can't make their own clothes. They don't work for it. But the Heavenly Father makes them even more beautiful than Solomon in his glory. And I love that little extra detail that Jesus puts in there. Because we've already established that, yes, we're talking about the bare necessities. But even there, God is providing for the lilies of the field something that's not just what they need, but is something beautiful. Something so beautiful, it's even more so than Solomon in all his glory. And if we're reminded then of the story of Solomon and the king of Israel, and when he was a young king, God offered him anything that he could ask for, and he asked for wisdom. God granted him wisdom, but because he had such a humble request, he also gave him much wealth and honor and glory and power. And so he was, to any Jewish listener, the preeminent example of what somebody wealthy would be. And then Jesus says, not only does God clothe the lilies of the fields, he clothes them in beauty that we can't even imagine. And through all of this, he says, if God does that for the birds and for the lilies, are you not much more valuable than they? Now, it's interesting. When I was doing my study for this passage, almost every single commentator wanted to be sure that we knew that Jesus was not saying that work doesn't matter. So teens, if you're sitting here saying, hey, they don't have to work for it. God just does it. Oh, Mom, I don't have to do my chores. Then I'm sorry. 
You're, you're, I, I can't let you off the hook on that one. This is not saying that hard work is not valuable. Jesus is not making that case. It is true. Neither the birds nor the grass work for what God has chosen to give them. But the point is that they cannot. The birds cannot be farmers. The, the flowers cannot toil and spin and make their own clothes. The, the focus is not on the birds or the flowers. It's much more on the character of God. That God reveals his care for them by providing for them what they need. It shows the heart of God. Above and beyond what we can achieve, God promises something to us. That he will provide what we need. So yes, we are still called to hard work. And we are still called to make wise decisions. To put ourselves on a path to succeed in this world. That, that hard work and that discernment are still valuable. But they are not the things that we rely on. They are not what we trust. When we do this work and when we make these decisions, we trust that no matter what happens, God will provide for us as he has promised to do so. Because sometimes our hard work will not be enough. And sometimes what seems like a wise decision will prove to be foolish. And God is there to say, I will give you what you need. So do not worry. Now, Jesus is not talking about uh, being lazy. He's not talking about quit working, but he is using the how much more teaching tool that was common uh, for rabbis to use at his time. And it was a very simple teaching tool that's also very effective that says, if this lesser thing is true, how much more will a greater thing be true? If the lesser is true, can we all agree this is true? Well, how much more will this greater thing be true? And so in the passage we read together, Jesus says, if God cares for and provides for the birds of the air and the grass of the field, how much more will he care for his children, for those he calls son and daughter? How much more? Which is exactly what he drives home in Matthew 6, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So the question again, if God does this for the birds, are you not of more value than the birds? Of course you are more valuable than the birds of the grass, because you and you alone as a human being are created in the image of God. And that gives you incredible value. Nothing else in this world has. Not only that, but you were called a child of God, adopted into God's own family, which is why Jesus repeatedly uses heavenly father language in this passage. So it's not just that you have this stamp of God's image that gives you value. You have personal value to God because you are his son or you are his daughter. You are adopted. You are incredibly valuable. In fact, you are so valuable that you are worth dying for as Jesus again would lay down his life for you. So if that is the value that God places on you, how much more will he provide for what you need? How much more valuable are you? So do not be anxious. There is no need. And then Jesus moves on to the most convicting rhetorical question <laughs> in pretty much all of Scripture for me as someone who's dealt with anxiety. He says this in verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
In fact, I've had this one quoted at me quite a few times as well, you know, dealing with anxiety or worry. Ah, and then there is this question that acts as a mirror. Can worrying be beneficial to you? Can it add to your life in any way? And of course, even though even those of us who struggle with anxiety, who are sometimes prone to worry, even if we're honest with ourselves, we know that anxiety and worry do nothing to help any situation. They are unhelpful. First off, we might be anxious about something that may not even happen in the future because we're worried about a future possibility. And I, I love it when I'm, when I'm preparing a sermon and then during the week something comes up in which I have to like, you know, preach to myself. And this totally happened to me this week. So uh, Karen and I were, were getting ready to go uh, to the lake. And while we're away, we're going to have some work done at our house. And we needed some materials. And we're doing some of the trim in our house. And so we ordered everything away from McMunn and Yates. And so they said, well, we needed some, some specific uh, trim around the doors. And they said, well, we have to order in packages of 20, but you only need two, but we can do that for you. And we're like, okay, it's great. And so we get their next invoice, and it shows that they're charging us for all 20. And it's costing us almost a couple hundred dollars more than we anticipated. I was like, I don't know about this. Like, that's, that's not what we agreed. And then it happened right before the weekend. And so there was like a three-day chunk where we couldn't get back to them. We're like, I'm not sure that's what we talked about. Like, what's going to happen with this invoice? And I began to get very anxious and worried. And then I had to be like, <laughs> Okay, I guess, I guess I can't fall prey to that. I can't stay here because I'm preaching on it this weekend. And so what happened when uh, the, the person got back to work at McMunnion Yates? They said, oh, that's okay. We can sell the other 18 pieces, no big deal. Right? And it was just a point in case that I was worried about something that didn't even happen yet. So that anxiety was by definition completely unhelpful when we worry about something that may never occur. But secondly, even if a situation that worries us does arise, anxiety does little if nothing to help us prepare or to get ready or to actually endure that thing when it happens. Now, there are some things we can do, right? Hard work still matters. Good decisions still matter. So when we become worried about something, we need to ask ourselves, what are things that I can do to help this situation? And we can do them, and then we need to let it go. And that letting go is the hardest part for those who like to worry. What can we do to help the situation? And after that, we let it go. We've really enjoyed our house here in Steinbach over the two and a half years that we've been in town. Uh, but there was some time in which we had just a little bit of water getting into the basement. And, and, and so there was a while for us to kind of figure out why this was happening. We had to try to fix the problem. And we did. We figured out that it was an old window that wasn't sealing properly. We replaced the window. And so now that problem is fixed. I have done something to help what I was worried or anxious about. I was worried every time it would rain that I would get water in my basement. Now I've done what I needed to do. I fixed the problem. So how easy do you think it is for me to quit worrying when there's a big thunderstorm in the forecast, right? It's not easy at all. Logically, I shouldn't worry anymore. I should not be anxious. I've done everything I can. And so I know that the anxiety I'm feeling is empty. It's, it's empty. It's not helpful. It's not useful. That problem has been solved. I've done everything in my power. Now is the hard part. I need to let it go. Because I cannot help the situation, I certainly cannot add a single hour to my life by worrying if there will be another little bit of water in my basement, which is, what is home ownership except trying to keep the water from going where it's not supposed to go? Amen to that. 
Here's what I love about this verse, though. Here's what my favorite part. It's not just that worry can't help you. It's that Jesus knows that worry can harm you, and it can harm you greatly. Now, I got this information off of uh, WebMD, and as someone who's been anxious a lot about medical things, I'm not actually allowed to go on WebMD anymore and self-diagnose. I've been told it's a bad idea. <laughs> I've had cancer a few times. It was not fun. Uh, you know, but here's the thing. When you go there, there's some trustworthy information. Just don't self-diagnose, right? But they have a, an article called uh, Physical Effects of Worrying, and this is something that I want to leave with you and leave with me because if we, if we live in fear and anxiety and worry, we can experience negative effects. Here's what it says. Chronic worry and emotional stress can trigger a host of health problems. The problems occur when fight or flight is triggered daily by excessive worrying and anxiety. The fight or flight response causes the body's sympathetic nervous system to release stress hormones such as cortisol. These hormones can boost blood sugar levels and triglycerides, blood fats, that can be used by the body for fuel. The hormones can also cause physical reactions like difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, so many other things that we know when we're anxious or afraid, we have that shot of adrenaline. Right? That, that's okay. It's meant to be used to escape a, a thing of fear, but anxiety doesn't allow us to use it. So when the excessive fuel in the blood isn't used for physical activities, the chronic anxiety and outpouring of stress hormones can cause serious physical consequences, including suppression of the immune system, digestive disorders, muscle tension, short-term memory loss, premature coronary artery disease, and heart attack. And if excessive worrying and high anxiety go untreated, they can lead to depression and even suicidal thoughts. And now you know why I'm not allowed to go on WebMD anymore. <laughs> Never really very optimistic on that website. But here's the, problem. here's the point. Not only is anxiety unhelpful, it is actively harmful. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, if we live in that fight or flight, we are tearing our bodies and our emotions up. And I love this because WebMD can, can give me access to this information, but here is Jesus standing on a mountain thousands of years before and saying, by the way, can any of you add a single hour of your life by worrying? No. And the reality is, and he knows this in full, that you can only subtract hours when you deal with fear and anxiety unchecked in your life. So, he says again, do not be anxious. And I love those questions. And I love rhetorical questions because it allows us to interact with what is being taught. But Jesus has a statement at the very end. And in verse 34, he says, For one final time, do not be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hmm. We will shift away here at the end as we conclude, away from the rhetorical questions to unpack this statement from Jesus. And he says, sufficient is the day for its own troubles. Tomorrow will have troubles of its own. Again, not a very encouraging way to end his teaching. But nothing Jesus has promised so far means that we will escape trouble. Nothing he promises means that we will not have things to even be afraid about or potentially to want to worry about. So if you feel the need to avoid problems in order to be less anxious, then you will never overcome anxiety. That's not the promise. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, nothing bad will happen. 
He says, do not worry because God will provide everything you need when trouble comes. Very, very different types of a promise. So sure, tomorrow will have its trouble, but it also comes with a promised provision of God to make it through because you are so much more valuable than the birds of the air and than the leaves of the field. Church, this is the manna principle. God gives us grace for today, today, each and every day, but not for tomorrow. Not yet. Not until it becomes today. And this should draw us back to, I I truly believe Jesus is alluding to that well-known story in Exodus 16 in which the children of Israel are wandering in the desert, having now been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they are hungry and they need God's provision. And if we read Exodus 16, verses 4 and 5, we see the way that God decides to provide. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So church, first of all, (laughs) when we read this story, we shouldn't just try to kind of me reminded of a Sunday school story. This is a miracle. The people were hungry. And what was God's response? He rained bread from heaven. <laughs> I mean, come on. Can you imagine this? He rained bread from heaven. He is capable. He is able. He is determined. And he is motivated to do this for you. It might not be literal bread from heaven, but God has promised to provide what you need when you need it, just as he did for the Israelites all those years ago. And yet, this miracle happened only with enough manna for that household for one day. And they were to go and they were to gather enough for that day. The only exception was before the Sabbath, where God would would give two days worth so that no bread would come on the Sabbath. They would have enough. And why did God do this? Why did God only give the people what they needed for each day? He says it right there. He says, I'm going to do this that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Will the people trust me every day or will they not? Will they obey me every day or not? Will they lean on my provision? Will they rely on me or not? Because here's the truth. Whether we read in Exodus or whether we read in Matthew, God wants you to rely on him each day, every day. And problems arise when we borrow trouble from the future. You see, when the children of Israel would try to gather more than they needed, if they wanted to give themselves a little buffer, a little insurance, uh, that, that tomorrow was going to be okay, you know what happened to that manna, that bread from heaven? It spoiled immediately. It wouldn't last more than one day, except for, miraculously, on the Sabbath. God designed it so that every day the people would have to come back to him. Do we live that way Do we trust that way? One of the greatest lies of anxiety is to borrow trouble from tomorrow armed with only the grace for today. You see, church, God has given you what you need right here, right now. But when we worry about what might happen and we drag those worries and anxieties into the present, we are not defended against them. One of the greatest lies of anxiety, I tell you again, is that we borrow trouble from tomorrow armed with only the grace for today. 
And if you are someone that worries, you know how easy it is to think about what may happen, what will happen, and to drag that into today. And you know that it might not even be your story. You can look at somebody else that's going through a tough time. Well, what if that happens to me? Someone's diagnosed with a critical illness. What if that happens to me? And you start to worry about it, and you start to put yourself in that story, but you don't have what you need in order to endure those things. They have it because they have the diagnosis. God has given them what they need. They lost their job. God has given them what they need. If we worry about those things without God sustaining manna, his grace, his strength, his presence, then we only tear ourselves up. And who can add an hour to their life by worrying? I love the way that Edward Welch puts it. He has a a few good quotes about this talking about the fact that we need to remember that just as God provided for us today, he will do that each and every day that we live. He says, your future includes manna. It will come. There is no sense devising future scenarios now because God will do more than you anticipate. When you understand God's plan to give future grace each and every day, then you have access to what is arguably God's most potent salvo against worry and fear. You have grace for today. And he says on page 145, you will be given all the grace you need when you need it and not a moment before. So at the end, Jesus leaves us with a wonderful cliche. Take it one day at a time because God gives us everything we need for that day. Every time you wake up and the alarm goes off, and you angrily hit snooze, and then you wake up again and it hits snooze. And whenever you eventually get out of bed, God says to you, you are valuable to me. I know what you need. I promise to give that to you. Rely on me. You have grace for today. And as we are reading along with this, you will probably be aware that there is a section of this passage that we haven't dealt with yet about seeking first the kingdom of God And that's uh, an omission by intent. And next week, we're going to come back here. We're going to talk about where our allegiances lie. We're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And so this is really just the first part of many. So before you type in that that question and answer, why did you talk about the kingdom of God? We're going to get to that. But today, I leave you with this. You have grace for today and each and every day. That is going to be enough. Let's pray together one more time. Gracious God, you are a father who gives good gifts and you promise to give us what we need. Yeah, sometimes that looks different than what we think we might need, but it is a promise. It's a promise based on your goodness to us that you say we are so much more valuable to you than anything else in this world. And you've proven that by adopting us, by laying down your life for us. So God, we thank you. And we thank you for that that history of provision that we can see in our own lives. When we look back, we know that we have lived many days in which you have given us everything we need in that day. And so, God, I pray that our own story and your own history of provision would allow us to trust you each and every tomorrow that you would give us the grace for that day as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.